Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously on March 2nd to make phone calls in county-run jails and juvenile detention facilities free. San Diego would be the second county in California to make phone calls from detention centers free following San Francisco. A portion of the fees associated with those calls goes to the San Diego County Sheriff's Department for inmate services, roughly $2.8 million a year. The vote also asks county staff to identify funding to replace the lost revenue. Since 2012, the Sheriff's Department has contracted with Securus Technologies, one of the largest providers of jail phone services in the U.S. Under the contract, the department is guaranteed nearly $2.8 million a year, about $140,000 of which goes to the probation department, which operates the county's juvenile detention centers. The rest of that money goes into the department's inmate welfare fund, which pays for educational programs and welfare packs. Supervisor Tara Lawson-Remer, who introduced the proposal, said it was morally wrong for the county to be generating revenue from inmate phone calls, especially since research shows that incarcerated people who are able to maintain connections to friends and family are less likely to reoffend after they are released from custody. Research also has found that high phone costs disproportionately impact low-income families and penalize people who have not been convicted of a crime. Roughly 70% of people in San Diego jails are awaiting trial. Currently, calls from jails and juvenile detention centers in San Diego County range from 21 cents per minute for prepaid interstate calls to 33 cents per minute. Voicemail messages cost $2 and a 20-minute video visit costs $2.50, down from $5 before the pandemic, which has halted in-person visits. The 13 federal executions that took place in the final months of Donald Trump's presidency in Terre Haute, Indiana, turned out to be COVID-19 super spreader events. According to an investigation by the Associated Press, the prison staff knowingly violated the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines for protection against the disease and exposed themselves, their families, prisoners, clergy, and reporters. The result was that dozens of people became infected after attending the executions. The United States Penitentiary at Terre Haute, according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, had 726 of the approximately 1,200 inmates test positive for COVID-19 as of late January. Since the Bureau doesn't test asymptomatic prisoners, the actual number of infections is probably higher. Between four days in December, 33 of the 47 people on death row tested positive. 
Prisoners have noted that the guards often failed to use personal protective equipment or take other protective measures when moving around the prison, and that many have resisted testing or vaccinations. The Bureau of Prisons insists that it has no authority to compel unionized prison staff to comply with its COVID-19 protocol. The outbreak of the disease doesn't surprise public health officials. The American Medical Association had requested that executions be postponed in Terre Haute because they are super spreader events. For our show this week, we have the first part of a conversation between Kite Line's Nicole Siegel and three members of the Carbondale, Illinois community, Chastity, Kim, and Nick. They speak about the ongoing struggle for the use of the Irma C. Hayes Community Center. Originally opened by the city as a space for youth, the city later defunded the Irma C. Hayes Center and put the responsibility on community groups to steward the building. Now, Carbondale politicians are proposing converting it into a police substation. In this first of two parts, these Carbondale residents speak about why they oppose police being put there and the conflation of an idea of security with so-called community resource officers, who often function as agents of punishment and trauma for teens in the local schools. They talk about the racial bias shown in punishment during school and how it relates to the incarceration of people of color. They also tell us about the current conditions in the nearby Menard prison, where they have incarcerated loved ones, and how important re-entry options have been limited in recent years, continuing a cycle of loss and trauma for many people in the area. Here they are. We have with us today Chastity Mays, Kimberly Henry, and Nick Smaligo. They're going to each introduce themselves, and then we're going to talk about some work that they're doing around the really important Irma C. Hayes Community Center in Carbondale. So with that, let me start with Chastity. My name is Chastity Mays, and I am the co-founder of a nonprofit named A Gift of Love Charity, and we've been doing um, just community work for a very long time. Mostly, we focus around arts and education programming. Right now, we have a big project. It's called the Art Racial Reconciliation Project, created a documentary for people to share their experiences with racism, and then there's a healing art aspect component. I, this summer, was a part of a group leading the charge to remove the school resource officer from our high school, and we're actually still working on that. The contract is up in May, so we're working on that. And then the Irma C. Hayes Resource Center came up, and Nick kind of called me up, and we worked together, and we're still working on this to try to stop that from happening in Carbondale. What exactly are you trying to stop from happening at the Irma C. Hayes Center, Chastity? So the current and new president of the Irma C. Hayes Center, or director, I guess you would call him, he came in and asked the police department if they'd be willing to put in a resource center. They're calling it a resource center. You could call it a police substation. Um, There's been so much talk around the resource center about what they're going to do. And we're just getting contradictory information from the interim police chief to uh, Mr. Bob Wills, who is the director president of Irm Hayes. But basically what we're hearing is there will be armed officers in the Irma Hayes Center. And really what they're calling it is community policing. We're not okay with that because we have did programming in Irma Hayes for years. We were inside of there. We did African drumming. We did African dance. We did a literacy program. So we were there when it was very active and there was never a reason to have police presence. 
never, not one time did the police get called to that center. It's a refuge. The history of Irma Hayes is beautiful. And I think what people are not realizing is when you have the Irma C. Hayes Center thriving, when there's programming for the children in that community to go to, when there is adults where they can go in that center and get health care, or they can get services, when there's maybe, let's say, food services, just anything that is in that center is going to help that community thrive. And I also think the voice of the youth is being muted in this conversation. They do not trust the police. I have a teenage daughter at home. She's 17. I know her and her friends. They don't trust the police. So why would you want to put that block there where we're putting the police in a center? That means they're not going to come. The center is supposed to be for them. It's supposed to be a place for them to go. And we're just putting up a block. I'm Kim Henry. I'm born and, born and raised in Carbondale. Um, my mother worked at the Irma Hayes. I think it was one of her first jobs here. We as children went to the daycare there. And like I said, you know, just throughout the years, it's it's provided opportunities for enrichment. I was allowed to develop Excel skills from participating in a, a basketball camp where I counted free throws mm-hmm. on an Excel worksheet just to determine who won. I am also a mental health counselor. And I'm also the mother of a child who's got a father that's serving a naturalized sentence in Menard Correctional Facility. When you have a loved one that's incarcerated, there's a lot of stigma that goes with that. You know, raising a child, you know, she's 25. We've got three grandchildren. With that stigma, you know, I believe she's been denied opportunities for enrichment and growth. And I think we need places like the Irma Hayes in our community to, to provide that enrichment, to do speeches, you know, to develop those type skills that schools are denying them. You know, we've got trauma in our communities, whether it's through health care, through, you know, just, just things that happen through over-policing, a loved one going to prison. We need places for them to talk about those things, to heal from those things. And to put an officer in there, I believe, will be just detrimental to this to the center itself and and to the development of the children. I've tried to utilize the police in Carbondale for help, mm-hmm. you know, and it just being a a destructive process. It it just hasn't been positive at all. So yeah, I'm I'm dead set against it in every way. It's such a tragic euphemistic distortion of the meaning of resource, you know, school (laughs) resource officer, community resource center, these things, they just now mean police. And there are ways for people to try to deny the fact that what's happening is intensifying the over-policing of black and brown communities and denying real resources, the real things that people need to thrive. Absolutely. When, When we have a resource officer at the school, And this resource officer is responsible for, uh, I believe, taking a girl's teeth out at the high school, you know, because he slammed her to the ground. It it just makes no sense to police them at school, then police them at the Irma Hayes Center. It's too much. Hi, my name is Nick Smolico, and I'm an organizer here in Carbondale with a project called the Carbondale Spring. And I'm actually running for city council in this election as well. A lot of the work that I've done with the Carbondale Spring is uh, an analysis of the size and budget of the Carbondale Police Department 
and really trying to articulate a criticism of this concept of community policing, which has been used to justify defunding direct community support programs like the Ermacy Hayes Center and to transfer those funding priorities into the police. So that's something that I have been working on with many other people for about two years. And just in the last month, maybe two months, this uh, struggle over the Armacy Hayes Center reignited. There have been groups in Carbondale that have called for a police substation in the Armacy Hayes Center for a number of years here. And at different points, there's been different debates about this. But on January 28th of this year, 2021, the interim police chief, Stan Reno, so a guy who's who's trying to become the police chief right now, made a public announcement on an interview saying that they were moving ahead with a substation. And I, I live right down the street from the Hermes Hayes Center. It's like basically across the street from me. I don't want police there. Neither do many of my neighbors, but those many of my neighbors who are oppose it simply were not consulted. There are a few people who are very vocally in favor of it, who attempt to speak on behalf of the whole community, which from my observation is, is a part of this idea of community policing. It always ends up elevating the voices of those members of a community who are in favor of the police and suppressing the perspectives of everyone else, basically insinuating that if you're opposed to the police expanding their power and presence, then you're not really a part of the community. When we heard that this plan was going to be moving ahead, then a number of us, including Chastity and I, were working on doing research around the Carbondale Police already. So we kind of shifted gear and really focused on looking at this question and how it got to this point, how it came to be that this community center, which had been built all the way back in 1973, as an act of reparation of sorts or an attempt at it, you know, because this was the moment when the federal government through the Model Cities program started investing in communities all across the country, but but particularly in Carbondale's Northeast side, which had been neglected by the racist segregation of this town for its first hundred years. And the Armacy Hayes Center was supposed to be this vision of how people could get direct community services all in one place there, it would be available to community groups, there would be health care, there'd be job training. And it actually served that function for the first instance when it was owned and funded by the city of Carbondale. And, and then the city of Carbondale defunded it. They offloaded the building onto a community group that didn't have the funds necessary and was basically kind of sent on its own to, to try to find grants to fund this massive community center and it never worked and the, the building deteriorated, the tenants left and in the area directly around it, people reported the, the experience of, of shootings and crime went up in the wake of its defunding. And so when we turned our attention to this, now we really started looking into this, it's like, what's, what's the whole narrative that created the condition where all of a sudden it's not even imaginable for so many people to simply ask that the city start funding it again because that worked right <laughs> where, where right. the only thing that people feel like they can ask for is police right yeah chastity let me come back to you if i may i'd like to hear more from you because you've thought about this so carefully and experienced it so deeply what are the systemic problems that 
what some people are trying to call student resource officers bring to a school setting and a community center setting. And if there are problems of security that people in Carbondale are trying to solve by bringing police to schools and the community center, what are other security measures that schools and community centers, the, the Irma Hayes Center could take to protect students, teachers, staff, community members in general? So I, ha I have did some research into this. And first I'll tell you that the statistics I have about Carbondale Community High School in particular are honestly, they mirror the national statistics. So what you will find is that the majority of the students who get detentions, who are suspended, who are arrested are the Black children. The Black children at Carbondale Community High School are 26% of the population, but they have 51% of the detentions. They have 60% of the suspensions. They are the majority of the kids who are getting arrested at that school. So what, what you're doing is you are seeing the disproportionate rates of Black and brown children being policed, being punished, being taught from such a young age that you are a criminal. So that's exactly what's happening. And this conversation has been had at board meetings. The principal has told me, yes, Chastity, there is a problem. We know there is a problem. So we need to do something about it. There's no reason for an armed police officer to be in that building. One of the things I heard from the other side of this argument was about security. That's the main thing. Well, who's going to protect our children? You know, if there's not an armed officer in the building, what would we do? Well, I will tell you that in all of this, I found out that if there is a problem like a school shooting, all the school would do is call 911. That officer is actually not supposed to even get involved in that situation. So there's honestly no reason for the officer to be in the building. The approach that I see that needs to happen is there needs to be more counselors. Mm -hmm. There needs to be more social workers. There needs to be more of a, I would say, a loving approach. These are teenagers. There are going to be problems but every problem doesn't need to be met with an armed officer. I have a daughter who graduated last year and she was at the scene of an incident that happened. And she came home and she told me, mom, there was no reason for that child to get arrested. There are cultural differences that happen. Like say, for example, if I'm with my girlfriends and I'm talking, right? Like I talk with my hands, we're loud, like different things like that happen, but we're not arguing because maybe you might not understand the way we talk to each other. We're not in a fight. We're not arguing. That's the way we talk to each other. That happens in high school all the time. I'm told by Black girls, they'll be staying in a group, talking to their friends. The resource officer comes up. What's the problem here? You guys need to break it up. And they're like, what do you mean we're talking? We're not arguing. So there are cultural differences. And there's a real problem in Carbondale Community High School. People need to learn, like, you need to address what's happening locally. And that's what's happening. So just like Kim said, now you're, we're going to take that where they've been all day long and they're not feeling valued as human beings because they're being policed all day for being literally teenagers, for living. So now we're going to take that to the Irma Hayes Center where they're going to go to after-school programming, and the same type of thing is going to happen. Where you're going to have all Black children in the building, which is usually what happens, there has been a diverse amount of people, but it's majority Black children who are in the building. So now, once again, they're going to go in there, and they're going to 
feel criminalized and they're going to feel punished because we as adults, for some reason, cannot think of any other way but to police our children constantly. Kimberly, as a mental health counselor, what are some of the benefits of the kinds of services that you and other social service providers can provide? And how can those kinds of resources take the place of a police officer? Acknowledgement of trauma, the flexibility of response, a non-punitive one, mm-hmm. per se. But, you know, in, in, in relation to what Chastity was saying, you know, here I have a, a completely different perspective from a lot of people. I've gone to Menard Correctional Facility trying to get a visit, okay? And the preparation that I take to walk into that facility and the preparation that I've taken to walk into my child's middle school and high school is exactly the same. That's problematic. That is a huge problem. You're saying that the schools are becoming carceral. Absolutely. When you as a parent, if I'm too loud, I get banned from the school, you know, but but you're doing things like you run social experiments on our children. You are creating these fight club conflicts in the school. Parents get mad. You know, if I cuss, I may be arrested or banned from the school, you know, for the whole rest of that year. We really need to stop and think about it. Think about what we're doing. This is how I'm feeling. This is my perspective. And as a counselor, it's just wrong. It's wrong. You know, you you have trauma resulting from interaction with a school. And it happens in early elementary that continues on to middle school, on to high school for things that children just don't understand. They understand things are not fair, but they don't know why. You're re-traumatizing them at all of these various steps. Absolutely. And then they have this trauma it just becomes overwhelming. And their response that one time, that one time may be inappropriate. And it, it's kind of like what I was saying with within the prison system now. Right. If you treat them like animals, they will eventually respond like animals. You were talking about the continuum of punitive or carceral frameworks that are being brought to bear on the community that the Irma C. Hayes Center serves. Can you talk a little bit more about that, uh, about that continuum? I think in some places people have conceptualized it as the school to prison pipeline, but you, you've now been talking about the middle school, the high school, the community center, and the prison, Menard Correctional Facility as all having some similarities in the ways that they treat people. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how those systems are similar. How those systems are similar are. Me as a counselor, my role is to assist this individual. If, if I fail at my job, we're looking at death or incarceration, no matter what it is. If a person is suicidal, you know, homicidal, uh, have a substance abuse issue, if they're involved in child welfare, once that child is removed from that mother or their father, their heart is broken. And usually substances come into the picture somewhere. So I have a healthcare system. When that healthcare system fails, what happens? You may die or you may develop some sort of mental health issue that results in you being arrested. When there's not enough food, what do I do? I'm going to eat at some point. You can't continually rely on a food kitchen that may or may not be open. Mm -hmm. 
So you, you may steal. You have an educational system. If my learning style as a child is not compatible with that district, if it's not something that they can accommodate in some way or some need that's not being addressed, you push them out or you give them an IEP. That IEP may limit their ability to reach out and say, you know, hey, it limits their exposure to more advanced topics. So then their education is limited. Mm-hmm. So they can only be qualified for so many jobs. So the probability of them becoming involved in the criminal justice system increases, you know. So when you look at these systems, they're all relative. They're all related. You know, when you don't meet someone's basic needs, they can't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. Can you they, talk a little bit about the riots at the prison? Well, from what I understand, they've been on lockdown since COVID, okay? So then they started limiting their commissary. You know, they could only buy six bars of soap and so forth. Then they cut the commissary back to once a month, all right? This month, they didn't even go to commissary. They gave them a a piece of paper and a pen and told them, you know, order your commissary. Well... When you go to commissary, you you learn how much you have and you you get to make decisions that way. So now they have to rely on their memory or guess at how much they have, you know, to to purchase things. And it's, it's been a continuous deterioration of the prison meeting their needs. Prison is, is just not meeting their needs. They haven't had visits since COVID started. You know, you're limiting phone conversations to 20 minutes. Video visits are 15 minutes. And it, it, it's just a change. Again, more trauma that you're introducing into the situation and not addressing it. They're playing some kind of game with the, the stimulus funds. They had all of them fill out forms for stimulus money. Well, they're asking us, you know, do have you got any stimulus money? No, there's no stimulus money. So it, it's just all these different things that they're doing, even with the releases that the governor had, where an individual could apply for COVID relief if they had a special health condition, you know. So what you have is a prison system that's 60% black or brown, okay? Then you introduce this concept. And then when you grant these releases, 50% of the people that get them are are white, Mm -hmm. you know, psychologically, you are messing with them. Psychologically, you are just messing with their minds because they're they're sitting there watching all of this. They can't go anywhere. They can't social distance. You know, then there's a problem with the vaccines. You got people out here that don't believe they need vaccines. Mm -hmm. You know, they should be the last people counted in that, which is absolutely false. And and we have this, this concept well, put it this way. We don't even address the prison system. When someone goes to Illinois Department of Corrections, they're gone. No more discussion about it. No more thoughts about it. It's like this invisible place that people go to. It's just wrong. The, the worst thing that ever happened in Southern Illinois was a, a gentleman by the name of Tim O'Boyle. He worked this region for reentry services like nobody's business. He was good. And when we lost him, the guys lost everything, I do believe. 
There's some reentry services, but he was very active with it. We'll have the second half of this conversation in next week's episode. You can find out more about the situation at our new website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.